So it just needs to be said that, uh, you know, I want to make sure to make this clear publicly that Derek, um, you get some extra points this morning for wearing the same shirt as the pastor. So <laughs> matter of fact, if you want, you could leave and leave right now because you got so many points for that, right? It's... Yeah. You know, I, I, it's funny though, right? You know, I, I, I don't know if this is still the same, but I remember, you know, growing up like, you know, in high school, uh, you know, like if two, you know, girls were wearing like the same outfit, like that was like devastating, right? If they came to prom and they're both wearing the same dress, like that just freak, freaks out. But we as guys were like, dude, yeah, it's so awesome, man. That's all. Yeah, I don't know if the same, I don't know. Yeah. yeah anyway, but it's good. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, if you don't know already, you know, Living uh, and walking with Jesus is a great adventure, right? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, the world oftentimes thinks that they've got, like, the corner mark on the market of fun, right? But I just totally, like, in my experience walking with Jesus, man, it's just crazy, right? I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen, right? You just kind of are walking through life, and God just shows up in surprising ways, right? And he does things, and he changes directions, and like, you know, man's best laid plans, right? I mean, if we were just going by what we were trying to do, right, it's like, oh, okay, we could have some fun. But God, he is so creative, and he just throws stuff at us that you're like, what? Where did that come from? And so this week he kind of did that, which is awesome. You know, it's, you know, as a preacher, I'm like, please don't do that, God. But, you know, um, he does it anyway. And so it's good. But anyway, so I have actually written uh, my message this morning. And, and I, I just want, I've done this a few times and I, I don't want to apologize for it. I'm just going to do it. I'm, I'm done apologizing for it because God keeps just saying, hey, you need to write this, right? And God speaks this way. He speaks differently. Uh, I typically, I'm a notes preacher, right? And so there's a, I'm amazed sometimes at, you know, what he brings in the moment and uh, clarity. You know, I do a lot of prep beforehand, but then in the moment, he still continues to bring new insights and things in the moment. I love that, and it's sweet and good and all of that. But he also sometimes speaks to me, especially in the last four or five years, he's been developing this writing in me, which I've never done in my life. And so uh, now I've written several uh, messages, and I've actually read them. And I know in my mind, I was, I, I was under a preacher for 13, 14 years who manuscript and read every sermon. And, I mean, he did a great job. He, you couldn't, I mean, so much tell he was reading it. He did a pretty good job of that. But it's like, you know, no way. I'm never going to do that. And then God, you know, he stretches me, right? He just say, ah, let me throw you this curveball. Aha, look at that, right? And so this week, I thought it was going to be a normal sermon, a normal thing. And then halfway through my preparation on Wednesday, all of a sudden, it just started coming out like in written form. And, uh, and then yesterday, he just kind of brought in some other pieces as I continued to write to finish things up. And I was like, okay, this is awesome. Like, hey, I got to do it. You know, I just got to lay it out there. So anyway, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my message this morning. I'm, a, I'm, I'm not going to apologize. No, I'm not sorry. So that's the way it is. Um, and uh, so sit back and enjoy. I'll try to read it as lively as I can and try to still walk around a little bit and make as much eye, can, eye contact as I can. But I apologize. No, I'm not apologizing. Stop it. All right, moving on. <laughs> sorry. I, can, you, can you feel the battle? Yes, it's, it's real. Uh, all right. This morning we need to dabble in a theological and philosophical topic 
that has been hotly debated by really smart Christians for over 500 years. <clears throat> Honestly, I've tried to avoid addressing this topic in a sermon due to my first, my lack of formal education. I only have a bachelor's degree in biblical studies, never got a master's, and don't have the MDiv, and all those kind of things that go with it, and the fact that I generally see myself more as a preacher than a teacher. What I mean is that I feel less skilled at delivering, excuse me, at delving into theological subjects that are more technical in nature and have many subtle nuances. I have a tendency to oversimplify things, which can be helpful, especially as a youth pastor, when in one-on-one -on -one conversations, but a detriment when speaking to a wider audience. But despite my complaints, God reminded me again this week that it's not about me. As the man who Four years ago, he selected to come and shepherd this congregation. I not only serve at his pleasure, but for his pleasure. This means each week when I stand before you, I am committed to proclaiming his word, not mine. I preach the messages he determines, not the ones that I come up with. I don't say that in hopes of manipulating you or convincing you that every word I speak is from God, <laughs> I say it with great fear and trembling, knowing that God has placed this mantle of responsibility on me, despite my continued weakness and sin. My daily prayer, especially on Sundays, is that every word I speak be glorifying to him, and that he would deafen your ears to those words that aren't. I prayed this prayer this morning, and I thank you for our prayer team who prayed it with me this morning as well, all for God's glory. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave 
to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then, God, then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand, take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The question that must be asked towards the end of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of humanity is simply this. How far did Adam fall? Last Sunday, the message uh, centered around the real-life consequences of sin. I outlined the impact of relationships, death, and human nature. All of our relationships have been broken as a result of sin. But also, we all are in various stages of spiritual, physical, and eternal death. But perhaps most disturbing is the impact on Adam and Eve's offspring. Perhaps you remember me saying that we each bear the guilt of Adam's sin, that the consequences of his sin have been imputed on each human so that all of us are considered sinners at birth. I then encourage you that in God's economy, this is actually a good thing because if Adam's sin hadn't been imputed onto us, then Jesus's righteousness couldn't be imputed on us either. However, what I skipped over so quickly last week is a profound truth that has sparked centuries of debate. Perhaps you can see the significance of imputed sin and righteousness if I state it another way. I'm going to make the statement twice. The truth of human existence is that neither our fearful anticipation of condemnation nor our hopeful longing for eternity is determined by our own moral choices, but instead on either the choices of the first Adam or the second Adam. Let me say that again. The truth of human existence is that neither our fearful anticipation of condemnation nor our hopeful longing for eternity 
is determined by our own moral choices, but instead on the choices of the first Adam or the second Adam. This reality has created a tension in the Christian world which has resulted in at least two main theological philosophies that attempt to explain sin and salvation. The two philosophies are, of course, Calvinism and Arminianism. Arminian. Ah, maybe now you see why I wrestled with God about this message. Due to the limits of time, I will not be explaining either one of these perspectives. <laughs> Instead, I will only address the beliefs pertinent to my subject today, which mainly lie on the Calvinist side of things. But for the purpose of full disclosure, you should know that I do not hold to either a Calvinist or Arminian view. I believe both offer important perspectives, but neither offers the best perspective alone. The great part of being in the, in, in the middle, which I love being, is that one, I get to choose the bits and pieces that I like about both, and I do. And two, like a Seahawk fan, at a game between the 49ers and the Rams, I get to throw jabs at both sides. <laughs> So let me do that right now. <laughs> it seems to me both Calvinism and Arminian theological philosophies are extrapolations of biblical truths that have gone too far. In short, Calvinists take God's sovereignty too far and end up trumping free will and ultimately making God the author of evil. But on the other side, Arminians take free will too far and end up trumping God's sovereignty and putting him at the mercy of human decision. Gross simplifications, I know. And perhaps for some, a bit offensive. Anyone? Anyone? <clears throat> but again, it seems to me that both go too far. And so we'd all be better off clinging to both biblical truths that God is sovereign and he created us with free will. Letting go of either one in order to logically extrapolate what we choose to be most important requires us to ignore too many passages. And as I will point out today, goes against the story of Scripture and the character of God. Okay, so let's go back to our question. How far did Adam fall? You may not even know what is meant by the question. To ask it another way, what is the extent of the impact of sin on Adam? Before he sinned, he was perfect in every way. He had no sinful nature. He had the moral freedom to choose what he would do. But after he sinned, he became imperfect, obviously. But did he still have moral freedom to choose what he would do? Or was his perfection a necessary characteristic in order to have free will? The term used to describe one's perspective on the impact and depth of sin is depravity, what simply means moral corruption. The Calvinists have coined the term total depravity to express their perspective on the impact of sin on Adam and all of his offspring. 
However, even among Calvinists, there is a debate about what they mean by total depravity. In general, total depravity means that every aspect of humanity was corrupted by sin, even their free will. But the strictest Calvinists also believe the impact of sin was so great that it is now impossible for any human to choose righteousness, even to make the choice to accept Jesus as Lord. Therefore, they believe that salvation is based solely on the choice of God and, uh, and not the individual. God arbitrarily chooses whom he will save, and whomever he chooses to save has no choice in the matter. Another term coined by Calvinists is irresistible grace, which simply refers to the impossibility of a person God has chosen to save being able to resist that selection. There are significant problems that come to mind with this strict Calvinist view of the impact of sin. Starting, in my mind, with the myriad of verses throughout Scripture that speak as though we still have a choice. Abram, go, God says to him, to the land I will show you. So Abraham went. Did he choose that? Joshua, he says to the people, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Jesus implores us, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus, again, whoever believes in me shall not perish. Why throughout Scripture is the onus of decision placed on us to choose if we really have no choice? If sin has so fully corrupted us that we no longer have free will, it seems the entirety of the Bible would be nothing more than a demented shell game where we are implored to choose where the marble is and offer great rewards if we can choose rightly, but all the while, there is no marble. Does this really fit the character of God? Is the being who created all there is, the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and all-good, really interested in playing such games with his creation? Has, has, has the one who is reality now created a virtual reality where he urges us to simply act like our decisions make a difference, while in reality he arbitrarily chooses who is saved and who is cursed. If this Calvinist perspective is true, then what, then what keeps God from just ending creation at Eden? Why take the time to call Abram, give the law, send Jesus, and wait for his return? If God determines who goes to heaven and humanity has no say in it, why go through the motions of history? Now, God certainly does not answer to me. And as a sovereign, sovereign being, he certainly can do whatever he wants. But this strict Calvinist perspective does not seem to line up with what God reveals about his character, especially his love. 
Does God, think about it, does God after the fall all of a sudden not care about love? Does he make a big show of love and the importance of giving humanity the free choice to love him in return, and then when sin happens, he just dumps it all? No, it seems throughout Scripture that God continues to make a big deal about love. He continues to call us to love him. Indeed, the greatest commandment is not be chosen by God. No, it's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we can't freely choose, then we can't love God. If we can't love God, then why does God command it? He commands it because we can love him. Certainly not in our own power, but we can still freely choose to love him. More than that, he commands it because it is what he wants above all things. This leads me to the real point that I want to get to today. God created with the hope that all would love him and that none should perish. But he also created with the wisdom that for finite moral beings, the only way we will truly love him is by understanding what love is. And the only way we can understand what love is, is to experience firsthand what love isn't. As has been said before by many pastors and Christian authors, God was not surprised by Adam's sin. He knew it was going to happen. Jesus was not an afterthought. He, he was not the backup plan that had to be put into effect when humanity screwed it all up, right? But let me take this one step further. Not only was God not surprised by the fall, it was actually his plan. Sin was a key aspect of his perfect design and strategy for saving the world. Now, he didn't make Adam sin, and he wasn't the one who tempted Adam. But in order for God to get what he wanted, in order for his creation to freely choose to love him, we had to fall. You see, before the fall, Adam uh, it was enjoying a charmed existence where everything was provided for him. He lived in a perfect creation without suffering, pain, death, sorrow, or even weeds, right? I mean, come on. How many kind of, wouldn't that be nice, right? No weeds? Oh my gosh, I hate weeds. He was in perfect relationship with his creator, and he had need for nothing. He was experiencing all of God's love every moment of every day, but like the spoiled teenager who complains that his parents didn't buy him the car he really wanted, Adam didn't really know what he had. And like that teenager, Adam's understanding of love was limited because he had known nothing else. From this perspective, it is no wonder that he eventually saw what he couldn't have as a sign of an over-controlling father. Never experiencing anything but good and love caused Adam to think more highly of himself than he ought and led him to believe he deserved to have it all, especially what his father had told him he couldn't have. 
But consider the powerful impact of the moment of his sin. In a flash, with one simple bite, Adam went from fully loved to fully rejected. Imagine it. One second, he is in total communion with God, with Eve, with creation, and the next, he is thrust into utter loneliness. Think of the fear that had to have swept over him. Would he have even understood what fear was at this point? It seems doubtful that he would have experienced it before this sinful encounter. The nervousness and stress of these new feelings had to have been overwhelming. The fig leaves would have been little comfort. No matter how big the garden was, it would have been too small. And then imagine the terror that flooded his body when he heard the voice of the Lord calling to him. Everything in his world turned upside down in a manner of minutes. Now, let's take some time to consider God's arrival to the scene. Many have assumed God's calling of Adam was like a parent calling to reprimand their child. You know, Sean Wesley Vandermark, what are you doing? Get over here. You need to sit down, right? Or Deborah Denise uh, Collinborn, stop throwing frying pans at your sister, right? Yeah, that's it. Oh, was it the other way around? Oh, my bad. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so we imagine sometimes that, you know, okay, so Adam in the garden would have had something like this. Adamacus, Jesus, Sapien. Get over here. What are you doing? What are you doing? Right? I mean, Adamascus, because his name was shortened, right? It was just Adam, right? So Adamascus, I think that's... Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but is this accurate? Is God the one who, the one who is all-knowing coming with anger and frustration? In Genesis 3, is God wagging his finger at Adam? And another thing, you're going to be picking all those weeds until, for, uh, until the garden's done, Right? It seems to me this is not the tone with which God speaks. Again, God knew this was going to happen. But as I said, if I am right, this is actually God's plan. He knows that Adam's sin was necessary so that humanity would be able to experience lostness and thereby be able to fully understand love. Like the parent who kicks their spoiled son out of the house, God kicks Adam out of the garden in the hopes that he will come to appreciate what he had, but more importantly, that he will eventually understand how much he's loved. 1 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So how far did Adam fall? He seemed to come into immediate contact with the depth of his sin. His awareness of his separation from his creator and the loneliness and fear that rushed in had to ignite instant regret. But what's interesting, despite his fear, sin is not done wreaking havoc on his soul. Instead of humility and repentance, Adam responds to God's inquiries by attempting to defend himself, by casting blame on the woman and on God. 
damaging power of sin is obviously not just on our outward behaviors. It has also infiltrated our minds. It deceives us. It feeds us lies and prompts us to be self-absorbed. Our will is impacted, and instead of desiring what is good, loving, and worthy of glory, we long for power, for wealth, for fame, and security. As we saw last week, the consequences of sin are extensive, and every aspect of life is impacted. And the reason they do so is because sin has corrupted every aspect of life. Unlike the strict Calvinists, most Christians have come to understand that Scripture seems to support a definition of total depravity that simply says this. Sin has damaged every part of creation, but it, it has not destroyed every part. Our behaviors have been damaged by sin, but we can still do right. Our thoughts have been damaged by sin, but we can still think right. Our freedom has been damaged by sin, but we are still free to choose. Our will has been damaged by sin, but we, are, we can still desire the right things. However, it is also important to point out we cannot do right things alone. What I mean is that it is only because of the grace of God that we can still do, think, desire, and choose right things. All good comes from God. So if we do good things, it is because God has empowered us to do them. He doesn't force us to do good things. He empowers us to do good things, which then we get to freely choose to do or not do. But if we do those good things, he gets the glory because without him, we couldn't do anything good. The relationship we have with our creator is a synergistic one. Synergistic is a fancy word that simply means working together. It's not monergistic, meaning God does it whether we want to or not. It's synergistic, meaning that, God, uh, that with God's help, along with our free will, we can do good things. Having this perspective helps us to hold on to two essential truths, the devastating effects of sin and the powerful love of God. Philippians 2, 12 to 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Understanding the depth of sin is extremely important for each of us. We must know how far we have fallen and the real-life implications that fall has on us. If we sell sin short, we'll tend to think we're really not that bad. We'll be quick to point out how much worse other people are. And if we know Jesus, we'll likely blame him for our own failures. There are plenty in our world who arrogantly pontificate how loving they are and who stand on their tiptoes to look down their noses while they moralize to their friends, families, and whoever will listen. There are a great number of people in our world, non-Christian and Christian alike, who have determined they are much more loving than God. 
Another tendency for those who diminish the power of sin is to, stri to strive for self-actualization. They believe in the power of the mind to conquer all of, in this world. If they just believe enough, work hard enough, or just never give up, they will eventually accomplish whatever it is their hearts desires. The power is always within them. They don't need anyone else, but everyone else better stay out of their way. We have too many people in our world we ha who have too high a view of themselves. Like Adam in the garden, they still think the world owes them. They have bought into the lie that at their core, they are good. Lest our chest puffs out too much, there are many Christians with this same mindset. They too quickly speak up, too quickly prophesy, too quickly make a decision because they don't recognize the damage sin has done to their thoughts and their wills and their decisions. There are too many Christians who love to stand and wag their fingers at the sinful heathens as they walk by and too many whispered judgments about their brothers and sisters in Christ and too many ears longing to be tickled by their gossip. Unfortunately, the seeker-friendly church movement, which swept through America in the 90s and early 2000s, ushered in countless Christians to our churches who had yet to be humbled by their sin. With a gospel message that diminished repentance and overemphasized grace, we let the spoiled brats into the kingdom. I know that's harsh, but there it is. You see, Adam wasn't the only one who needed to be kicked out of the garden. We all need to. The truth of the gospel is that until we are confronted by our dreadful sinfulness and our total depravity, we cannot understand the amazing grace of God nor respond to him with the appropriate gratitude and love. This is, in essence, the other side of last week's message about God's holiness. Salvation is for those who know the ugliness of their sin and recognize the unwarranted favor of Jesus which salvation offers. Understanding the depth of sin is important, and such knowledge is key to finding true salvation. But just as essential is to know the power of God's love. There is great danger in giving sin too much power. And many, especially in the church, have stumbled into this trap. We have seen too many outside the church who hear the gospel and the wonderful grace of God, but who feel too despicable to receive this love. Jesus' great offer of salvation is left hanging because they are so aware of their sin that they've determined they are unworthy of saving. Some may truly long to be saved, but mistakenly feel they must somehow clean up before bowing to Jesus. There are many who've never made it into the kingdom of God simply because they thought sin was more powerful than love. We also see this played out in the church. As countless believers are missing out on the glory of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Because their sin 
has driven them to cower in the corners of churches. They are in the family, but they don't feel like they belong. Despite their continual repentance, they never feel fully forgiven, and sin continues to chain them to their pew. Every sermon is directed toward them, and everyone in the church is obviously more holy than they. When they pray, all they can see is their sin, and all they can feel is judgment. All they can sing about in worship is their sorrow. All they can read about in God's word is the total and complete and smothering depravity. Although saved, sin still dominates their mind, hearts, and every area of their life. But sin is a defeated enemy. Sin affects every one of us. It's all around us, and it's in us. It certainly impacts every aspect of our life, but it does not rule. True, the love of God rules. It is the love of God that not only inspired his creative act, but drew him to create humanity with the ability to freely receive love and freely give love in return. It is the love of God that led him to the garden after Adam disobeyed. It is the love of God that demanded he punish Adam for his sin. It is the love of God that inspires his continued pursuit of every one of his creatures. It is the love of God that motivates him to send his son to die for his cre creation. It is the love of God that gave him the strength to let his son choose death. It is the love of God that ignites our hearts to seek him. It is the love of God that calls us to admit, confess, and repent of our sin. It is the love of God that prompts him to forgive us. It is the love of God that restores our relationship and with which he accepts us into his family. It is the love of God that will eventually destroy all evil and put the final nail in the coffin of sin, sinful nature, and the great deceiver, Satan himself. Amen. Sin indeed has a great impact, but love is always greater. All right, worship team, why don't you come up? So how far did Adam fall? He fell as far as God allowed him to. Yes, every aspect of his life was corrupted by sin. His mind, his will, his choices, his physical existence, his behaviors. But by the grace of God, sin's corruption was not complete. God allowed for the possibility when conditions were just right for Adam and all of us to make a free will choice to love him in return. It is only when we understand the depth of our sin and the power of God's love that we can not only be saved, but can enjoy the intimate, loving relationship with Jesus that we were created for. Let us each take time today to sit in the presence of Jesus and listen for his voice.
let us ask one simple question. Do I need greater awareness of my sin or of your love? Then, whatever he says to do, if he calls you to repent, do it. If he calls words of affirmation over you, receive it. And if he's silent, just rest with him. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us so much that you allowed us to freely choose to reject you. You allowed us to run away from you, to, to go our own way, to do our own thing. You allowed us to fall into our sin. But thank you, Lord, that you continue to call our name. Not to reprimand us, but to call us back into fellowship. To ask the question, have we sinned long enough? Have, have, have we gone our own way long enough? Have we recognized that what we had in the kingdom? Have we understood, have we come to the understanding of what real love is? Lord, help us to continue to answer your call. And for any who in this room or online and have not responded to you calling their name, may they do so now. Luke chapter 15, verses 17 and following. But when he came to himself, he said to many of my father's hired hands, have more than enough to eat, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate in Jesus name amen, amen. God bless have a great Sunday see you guys next week